Hi, this is Ron Hogan, and you're listening to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast, where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. And my guest today is Sonia Tates, and she is the author of The Watchmaker's Daughter, which is published by McWitty Press. Hey, Sonia. Hi. Tell me a little bit about why, after your previous books, um, you felt like you wanted to write this very personal memoir. I felt that I had to write the real story about my parents because I could really explain the effect that it had on American childhood. And to fictionalize it uh, wouldn't be quite as personal and as real. So I'm writing, I'm writing the story of how one generation bridges to another through very personal and truthful memoir. Whereas in fiction, a lot of that would be hidden under the characters, the extra characters, and the plot. Wanted to sort of lay it there. To contextualize this for listeners, your parents were both Holocaust survivors who came to New York afterwards, and you grew up in New York. And as the memoir makes really painfully clear, you grew up pretty much in the shadow of the Holocaust in the way that your parents raised you and, and, and discussed it with you. Well, from the minute I was born, I, you know, say in the book, I was kind of born into the Holocaust because even though it had been over for a number of years, my parents spoke about it from the minute I entered the you know, delivery room. It seemed to me that there was no world that I knew that didn't have the Holocaust as the main drama in it and very real. And I make the point that my parents talked about it a lot. Many parents either didn't talk about it because they wanted to save their children the pain or they couldn't talk about it. They have repressed it. My parents talked about it right away and also sort of enfolded it in a mission for me to change the world. I mean, it was all, it was all there. This sort of Manichaean battle between good and evil was set up for me when I was, you know, just a little kid. <laughs> Your father, in particular, had placed a lot of, or invested a lot of hope in you, it sounds like, in terms of what you were saying about this mission to change the world, that he was convinced that you were going to be able to do it if he encouraged you to apply yourself throughout life to that mission. Well, my father himself was a very charismatic character. I mean, I would compare him both to Yul Brynner and The King and I, and to Zeus, you know, the Greek god. He was just so, uh, very, very masterly very brave, and he himself had had a tremendous effect on the Nazis in Dachau such that he had saved fellow prisoners at his watchmaker's shop. So knowing that my father had saved lives in Dachau and had stood up to, in some way, the Nazis um, embedded in me a need or a, a recognition of the possibility of changing evil, changing the course of history, and particularly doing so through words. Let's unpack that family history a little bit and talk about what it was that your father did um, at Dachau and how he was able to use his opportunity to save the lives of other prisoners. Well, he was a watchmaker, and I'll take that a step back, which is why was he a watchmaker? In his, his life pretty much began with the murder or assassination of his father, who was a miller in Lithuania, and his father had been killed by the Cossacks. So leaving my father's mother a widow, my namesake, Sonia Tates, had three children. My father was the youngest. They couldn't afford school for him, so... Before the age of 13, around where he would have had a bar mitzvah, he instead apprenticed to a master watchmaker. And that seemed a tragedy at the time, but later when there was the selection of the Nazis, where you work and if you live, his skill was very important to them. It was a portable trade and a practical trade, and they sent him up as a watchmaker in the camps. He used that position to save other people and to bring them into his watchmaker shed, I guess you call it, by helping them pretend to be watchmakers, you know, put the loop in their eye and pretend to be working with these miniature, you know, scalpels and screwdrivers. And by doing that, you know, many of them survived. And as I mentioned in the book, 
I saw a lot of these people later when I was 10 years old in a, in a park in Jerusalem. Under the palm trees, you know, suddenly emerged a group of almost ghost-like figures, and they, they got louder and louder and larger and larger as I saw it. And then they fell on my father, embracing him and crying and saying, Tates, you saved our lives. In all the things that he had discussed when the Holocaust was invoked in your family, that aspect of the situation had never really come up for you before. That was, this was kind of the first you realized. Yeah, he was, he was very proud. You know, you really couldn't insult him. He would take umbrage. You know, Sotheby's, the auction house, wanted him to be their curator and evaluator of their pocket watch collection because that became his expert antique pocket watches, but they kept him waiting, so he left. At the same time, he was very humble, almost zen-like. He would not talk a lot or take credit for things and take his time with everything he did. So I didn't really know about that part of his life, that he had been a hero. But he had told me, I'd seen him jump into the subway tracks to pick up one of my mother's, you know, straw summer shoes. I saw him do heroic things. I saw him being very athletic, but he hadn't told me that story. So that was a moment in time where things crystallize. What you had seen a lot of growing up was that he had a particularly trigger temper around yeah. uh, your, you and your brother and your mother. Yeah, he had rage, and this relates to the pride thing. I think he'd been so often put down in his childhood when he'd walk he'd very athletic and playfully be like in the woods near his house, and children would te tease him and say that he drank, that Jews drank blood. He stood up for himself, got to a lot of scraps. And then, of course, the communists came in he, and considered him to be a capitalist because he had finally created a little store for himself to sell and fix watches. And he managed to get himself the top of the line Harley Davidson. They took all that from him. So he was, he was unmanned or diminished so many times. And of course, in the Holocaust, you're wearing these baggy striped pajamas and people are constantly screaming at you. And, you know, many times he faced death, you know, before that he was in the ghetto. And I think he couldn't take the idea of American children talk back, mm -hmm. uh, this talk backy thing that you see on TV. You know, I'd watch a show and think it was perfectly okay for me to say to my father, well, I don't really think so, Daddy. You know, you wouldn't understand it, but blah, blah, blah. And that would make him enraged. And my father was a defiant, my brother, sorry, was a defiant kind of Huck Finn kid. Whatever you told him to do, he'd just take his fishing pole and go away, which was not the same as sitting in the yeshiva studying Talmud for three hours. And all this lack of control, I think, enraged my father. And it didn't take, it took a lot, but it didn't take much for him to go from zero to 60. There's one scene in the, in the memoir where you come home from camp one summer and you announce, Daddy, I'm 14, I'm too old for you to hit me anymore. To which his response was to hit me. Well, yes, he was, he didn't like announcements that basically his reign was over and he was, you know, going to the guillotine. And what was interesting about that day for me as a writer was that was the day that I began to put things down on paper. In this case, I had a million things to say to him that started with, I hate you, you know, you creep. And I started to just scribble down my thoughts on scraps of paper. And then I tore them up and flushed them down the toilet because those thoughts were taboo. But I had written them in a sense I was sending them up to my first public, you know, the fish and the whales. Now, your mom came from a, a much different kind of background than your father. The socioeconomic contrast between them were were big, and she often brought them up. She was from a bourgeois family. They had a grand piano, and she was studying at the conservatory to be a pianist, and they had maids. One of the first, I don't know much Lithuanian, but one of the first phrases she taught me was, Ansia, bring me another spoon. So there's just, you know, her mother wore furs and she had, I think when my mother was little, there was a carriage with horses and they were, they were well off. So um, my father came from the 
other extreme, I guess you'd say, you know, not being able to afford school, using his skates to like teach other kids to do tricks and then getting paid for it so he could afford books. A very hard scrabble life, but at the same time, he was very aristocratic, a natural feeling of nobility around him. It seems like growing up, there was a combination of that your, your older brother, Manny, was your mom's favorite in one sense, but her favorite was also tinged by her resenting the fact that you were your father's favorite. Yes. Well, there was, a, you know, my parents' um, lives together started with a very romantic ball, which was for Lithuanian Holocaust, Lithuanian Jewish Holocaust survivors in a little hotel in New York, and they both waltzed and polkaed across the floor, and they were both good dancers. And there was a deep, I think, admiration of each other, and I think that when I was born, that got demoted because for many reasons during the marriage, a lot of things happened. But my father also immediately glommed on to me as someone he could really talk to. And the fact that my hair was very black to my mother and her mother, who she saved and who survived, my grandmother, that was his side of the family. And that was the kind of darker Jews that couldn't be hidden. Her side was very blonde. In any case, my father took over favoring me. And yeah, that created a rift, a strong rift in the family. And I think a sense of jealousy on my mother's part which was only made worse by, you know, later on, women's lib and me coming out wearing mini skirts and wanting to have a career. All those things alienated us from each other. And my father, you know, on his side, wanted me to go all the way career-wise. I mean, he, he, I think he wanted me to be president and Miss America and, like, you know, win the Oscar. All at once, probably. It's, it's interesting that, you know, that he has that ambition. And at the same time, there's also that reluctance to let you go. You write about how when you were graduating from high school, you got into Yale. Or, or you could have gotten into Yale. Yeah. I mean, for most of the rest of us, the distance between Manhattan and New Haven is probably not <laughs> that significant. Yes. But to your father, it was just like unacceptably distant, and you ended up going to Columbia. That's such a good point, Ron. I, I, no one's ever asked that. You're right. He was so ambitious. I was supposed to go on the first space mission, probably, while accepting the crown from the Miss America contest, and yet he didn't want me to go one and a half or one hour away to New Haven. That is a really good point. I think he was very attached to me on some emotional level, intellectual, emotional. That's part of him that probably had that, I think, the Holocaust where you seize up and you don't want to lose anything. But yes, because of him, I didn't go to Yale, and I had to scratch that itch later. Unfortunately, it was in the law school stage, which I didn't like at all. But yeah, that's that was unlike him. That was unlike him. And then a few years after law school, I came back and wanted to go to England, and I think he felt guilty about having clipped my wings. And I could, um, that's how I got to Oxford. You know, you mentioned that incident uh, when you were 14 as sort of like setting you out as a writer or, or sort of the genesis of yeah. your, and then going to law school and then the law career. Really? I mean, it seems like it was a prolonged detour. It was, exactly. <laughs> I thought, and maybe my father thought we were very naive, we were very green. And I think both of us thought that law school is a, a platform and a soapbox you get up there and declaim like Oliver Wendell Holmes or, you know, I guess Spencer Tracy and Inherit the Wind, and everybody listens and, you know, the multitudes are swayed. Whereas actually I was writing, you know, triplicate forms and searching through onion skin documents in dark closets. And when I did get out to the court, I would be briefcase number three in a, you know, phalanx behind a big creep who was defending the wrong side. So instead of using my words to make the world better, or even express what I saw. It was using my words to be the mouthpiece for someone else with whom I really would disagree. It was the opposite of being a writer because it was having to say what you didn't think, like being forced to sign a confession or something. It was it was a misuse of your writing. For the girl who spent summers 
you know, doing rifle practice at probably the most militant um, Jewish summer camp in, in the New England area. Yeah. I mean, it's a sort of a really abrupt transition to be like, you know, third attorney in the back. Yeah. I w- and I chose the most white shoe. They call them white shoe place. And I wonder if the lawyers there actually ever wore white bucks, like, you know, really waspy, couldn't be more conservative place. And there I had been a few years earlier, slithering on my stomach with a twenty two rifle. Yeah, you know, I loved gathering experiences, and I kind of wanted that one to be in that kind of really elite environment. I was going in like a like an archae- no anthropologist. I wanted to see everything, and that probably didn't please me, but I'm glad that I saw it. Might have had an itch for it that I've scra- I scratched a long time ago to be part of the power elite. How did you sort of escape from that back towards your vocation as a writer? It was a terrible transition because. I was only 21 at law school, and that's the apex. I think it really is the apex to get into Harvard or Yale Law School. I got into both and chose Yale, which was smaller, and had sworn to me that it was a place where people just drifted around speaking about philosophy, like, you know, some Aristotelian park. Instead, it was, you know, hard law, and I was studying early on about contracts and torts and business units, as they called, you know, stocks and bonds. And a lot of people there had very big, thick necks and were talking about big bucks and liked to smoke cigars. It was a horrible shock that they weren't still trying to read and listen to concerti. And I was, you know, very studi intellectual, and that didn't suit me at all. But I did notice that a lot of the people there had spent time getting other degrees. That law was something you did when you ran out of ideas or you got you got your Ph.D. or you worked in government. So I applied to Oxford, and when I got in, that was my way out. I took a leave of absence. The dean was extremely kind and cool, and he said, of course, you know, take as long as you need. And I went there to get another degree. And that's when I went resumed what I loved in college, which was, yes, inhaling or suffusing myself with culture. And that's a funny word, culture. It was really deeper than that. It wasn't getting the sort of gloss of, of culture, but rather really feeling it and imbibing it. There's also kind of a culture shock for you in that growing up in New York City, you had always sort of grown up in a very tightly knit Jewish enclave. I mean, your family still spoke Yiddish at home. Mm-hmm. And even though you were in neighborhoods where there were other ethnic communities, I mean, it was a really tight knit sense of, of Jewish community around your family and their, and their friends. And then you get to England. Being Jewish in Europe at that time, it seems like it's a much different experience than being Jewish in New York at that time. That's, that's another great question. It was the late 70s, and you would have thought by then that everybody had already taken off all their clothes and shared the Coke and danced, you know, sung Kumbaya, but it wasn't so in England, which tended to be about 20 years before. So they were still in the 1950s. And to be a Jew or a black or what they called a Paki was totally not okay. And it was perfectly okay to say that. I was thinking the other day that in America, we can, we don't, we shame people who's, people still say things, but they're ashamed to say it. They'll, they'll shut their mouths in certain contexts. There it's perfectly okay and no one would stop you. So I couldn't have gone further out into outer space in my little space suit. You know, in fact, the umbilical cord was cut. I had come from a place where everyone was Jewish, not just Jewish, but at the beginning, Holocaust survivors speaking Yiddish and remembering the same towns to a place where, and Barnard is, you know, Columbia isn't, you know, certainly a, a detour from, from Judaism. And at Yale Law School, everyone was either Jewish or wanted to be, or, or they were Talmudic and a lot of the professors were Jewish. So when I got to Oxford, I had a real blast of xenophobia and, in a sense, a real feeling for what my parents had described during the worst times of their lives. Obviously, no one wanted to kill me, but I was constantly feeling um, shock 
Unlike my parents, though, I was kind of like the art anthropologist. I was like, oh, they really do shoot darts that anesthetize you. You know, it was really exciting to see actually what I had read and heard about in action. My mother's philosophy, well, is it a philosophy or a, a gut feeling was that based on her years in Eastern Europe was, it's just under the surface. And the Gentiles in general, their main purpose in life was to drink. And my mother called run, running and drinking and gambling and, and you know, if they were with a Jew, that would soon rise to the surface. For me, it didn't take that mm-hmm. long. I think people spoke about it openly, maybe casually, and I just grab it and say, oh, well, I'm Jewish, you know, that probably what you're saying has nothing to do with the truth. So I was so well trained after 12 years of yeshiva and all that stuff to to take this on. But yeah, my, my mother couldn't have been more xenophobic. And there I was uh, doing probably the exact opposite of what she would have wanted. But at the same time, also sort of doing exactly in a way what your father would have wanted i'm thinking of the promise that he made you make him before you left for england which was to not just to always be true to yourself but to always be true to to your people and, and to your, and to your so he probably didn't understand it at the time but i was doing that it was very boring to be you know a fish in the water you know what was the point of me being in that sort of ghetto and for me, what was the point of sitting with my mother in the kitchen shelling peas and ranking everyone else lower than ourselves? It was much better for me to go there and expose myself to this, expose people to to my culture and so on and so forth. So yeah, I took the vow seriously, but I would imagine that he thought for many years that I was completely breaking it. I want to sort of sidestep and talk about, in, in terms of the larger picture, you know, going back to what we had said at the beginning about telling the story this way because it had to be told the way that it happened, that it wasn't something that you could really fictionalize. Yeah. And I want to sort of unpack your process of unpacking these memories from your childhood and and your young adulthood and, and what it was like to sort of revisit that territory after so many years. I think that it's easier to write fiction, or for me it was, because you can just, it's like playing dolls or setting up, you know, a dream, and you're very free. And here I had to be responsible to my parents and I waited 10 years till that, you know, after their, both of them had died to even begin to write about them. And, okay, so one burden is you have to be very fair. And I tried to mention Chekhov, I was very Chekhovian. I never wanted to damn any character in the books, even, you know, people you would think I would. I try to understand them. That was fairly difficult to do and required me to, to grow emotionally. And then to make it a story rather than a diary, like first I did this and then I did that and afterwards... You know, it's not a resume, and it's not a diary or journal. You have to shape it exactly in the topiary way that you shape a novel. So all that's really tough. But having said that, oh, yeah, I forgot to say that I, you know, would get very depressed and I'd go into these dark places. I mean, to bring it back when I now had children and to remember something my father had told me. We went to this international gathering in Washington where he testified, I'd never heard the story, of the day all the children were taken out of the ghetto while the parents were gone and what it sounded like to hear the women screaming. Let's talk about that and think about that. I didn't write about it. Just to be back there when I had little kids in the house really brought it home to me much more and with much more power, much more pain. You know, you mentioned sort of the empathetic process you went through in in terms of looking at the people in your lives. We've discussed that in terms of your father's rage, which we, we hit upon earlier in the conversation. But there are also things like, I'm thinking of the incident where for your tonsillectomy, you know, your mother basically says, oh, hey, we're going to the toy store and you can get anything you want. And you're all like, hey, we're going to the toy store. And then 
she basically takes you to the hospital. It's so painful to go back and feel the betrayals that people have done or, or as a parent to think about things that you would do differently. But I do understand it because she was very frightened. I saw it throughout her life, very scared of, of seeing something bad happen to someone she loved. And even though it's kinder to be there, I think her compassion, I think her oh, overly excessive emotional reaction, she couldn't deal with telling me. And then I've heard lately from people that they've had the same thing, that in those days, hospitals were places full of lies. You wouldn't tell someone they were dying. When someone had gave birth, they were put to sleep, you know, put, put under a slumber. My mother thought that childbirth was painless, forgetting that she wasn't awake for it. And when children went to the hospital, it was common to um, not let parents be there or to grab them and, you know, none of this touchy-feely stuff. So, yes, but I thought it was, I thought it was a really bad thing to do at the time and I wouldn't speak to my mother. Even at the age of four, I stopped speaking and eating, which really upset her. I hope I presented all the characters in my book, of course, in particular my parents, as, as incredible people. You know, uh, my mother wanted me to write about her. It would be, I think it would be foolish to write about someone without talking about who they were and, you know, warts and all. Being able to sort of understand why it was that that was the way that they handled that situation. You no, know, bringing me to the hospital, when I think about it, it's almost like giving someone up. And she was basically forced to. The doctor said, you've got to do this. And it probably broke her heart to let me go and be grabbed away. Who even knows what she was feeling? But from my perspective, being very curious and asking a lot of questions, and my father always would tell me the truth to a fault. <laughs> I remember I asked him once, you know, am I really pretty? He goes, you know something? That's not really important. You have something much greater than beauty. Because I was a very awkward-looking child from, say, like 7 to 14. And during the years when my teeth stuck out like a can opener and my hair was cut by my mother, it was very chopped, he was telling me the truth. But my mother could do white lies and that, too, is part of the culture, sort of elied over horrible things. In the waiting 10 years until after their death, when it came time to, to revisit the memories, had the memories stayed sharp over the, those 10 years? Or What happens is something that Wordsworth, I studied Wordsworth at Oxford, um, with Professor Wordsworth, his like great-great-grand-nephew. Wordsworth said that poetry is emotion recollected in tranquility. So you have to spend a few years not feeling, I guess, the immediate impact. So that could create a could create good art. What I was trying to do was a little more symphonic. So yeah, I did feel everything again. Things do come back. But you know, it's funny how memory works. I bet there were a million things I don't remember. I just used each of those memories like one of those little, I think of them as M&Ms that Hansel and Gretel would leave in the forest to take me back. The the, the core dynamic of this, much of the story is, you know, your relationship with your parents. You know, assuming that Manny has seen this, does he sort of feel that it he's you know, that it gets your parents right? My, I was so afraid of my brother reading it because we each had different, every person has a different memory of the same events, let alone two siblings in the same house and two siblings in my house, which basically was like a Rashomon of perspectives. He surprised me by saying he loved it and it brought them back to life. So that was very rewarding to me. It was great to hear that he and everyone else had been represented fairly. Where do you feel, having done this memoir now, where do you feel like, you're headed next as a writer. Well, I'm gonna, I'll tell you that in a second. I just had a, a second thought about my brother. It's interesting to know that my brother felt it was great, very much quieted down. He's my big brother. He's sort of like big personality, quieted down, very humbly thanked me and praised me. And that people who really don't know me, who aren't Jewish, have resonated and said, this is my story too. And I don't know if it's because we're all a country of immigrants or whether the story of a child and their parent going different paths, you know, 
the pull to be faithful and the pull to be faithless might resonate with people. My next book is very similar in a funny way. It's a novel. You wouldn't think it was similar, but it's about Mel Gibson. It goes right back to the same source material, really, that here's a person who grew up in New York, you know, countryside of New York, and had a normal American life, then went to Australia and had the bizarre life of being a movie star. But back in his childhood, his father was very repressive. I mean, I create some of this. I create the story in the same way that Primary Colors fits something in or Curtis Sittenfeld's American Wife. I'm sh shading in that his father was very fundamentalist Catholic, full of rage. Things that I've seen on his father's website have scared me, like thunder and lightning and these conspiracy theories and pamphlets. So I built on that, create a character who was born in a sort of fairly normal place outside New York, fell in love as a young teenager with a Jewish girl from a normal family, and had to go home to his father who was insane and beating people and had a huge statue of Christ bleeding that you know was re replenished every day with ketchup. And then becomes a big movie star and later has a nervous breakdown, as he actually did, and says bad things about the Jews. The material, no matter what I do, seems to come back to that. I've, I've been fascinated by him because I think he is, he's got similar fixations to me. His movies are all about reclaiming your heritage, you know, being Scottish or getting your child back, you know, sort of vengeance fantasies. Very, very strong point of view. To see him go so far out in terms of not communion and bridge building, but hatred. I wanted to investigate him as I'd want to investigate anyone who I thought was a frightening hater because I want to understand them, as I said before, not just present them as a caricature, but get behind what created that character. And then, like you say, as, um, you know, in the way that Joe Klein in Primary Colors used, you know, an obvious real world analog as a starting point to sort of build from that and, and make it something creative and and the two cases I've mentioned, I think neither Bill Clinton nor um, Laura Bush will uh, threaten to take my intestines out and feed them to me, <laughs> as, you know, um, Mel Gibson said to Frank Rich. But I still think that, honestly, I think that people who read this will feel compassionate towards him. He may actually feel a sense of closeness to the character I've drawn. And how far along are you on that? I've finished it. I'm now editing it. Thinking beyond that, too, that two things I'd like to also write the, my book now has a really big romance in it. The, the watchmaker's daughter, you know, what happens in England, as you know, Ron, is that I fall in love with an Englishman whose parents hate Jews, and my parents don't exactly love Gentiles. And it, we reconcile over a Sabbath meal with, you know, challah and wine, and it's like a fairy tale. So one of the books I've, I've thought of writing is about love affairs that were supposed to be dynamic, you know, throughout history, and what really happened after, you know, after the time, like how they started, why they started, what made them so deep. And the other thing is maybe to write something else, I'm not sure as long, but about my mother, because I'm as much the pianist's daughter as the watchmaker's daughter. You know, I have a mother who's brought through in the book, but um, from a different perspective. Well, that is something that we can look forward to along with all the other projects. We've been talking with Sonia Tates about her memoir, The Watchmaker's Daughter. I'm Ron Hogan, and this has been Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast. I hope you'll join us at a future date for another episode of Life Stories. Thanks.